Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. The scripture for today's teaching is from the book of Jude, verses 5 through 16. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blasphemy of the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. They are hidden reefs at your love feast and as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness have been reserved forever. It is also about these that Enoch, the seventh of Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters who showing favoritism to gain advantage. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Heather. Just some uh, chicken soup for your soul this morning. What in the world? Some of you are like, I'm really glad I'm not preaching today. Uh, well, here we are. So I- I'm excited to be with you today. If we haven't met, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors. And what we love to do as a church is we love to take books of the Bible and just slowly work our way through that. And so that's what we're doing today. We started Jude last week, and it's a short little book. It's uh, uh, just a, a few short verses. And we're going to take a total of four weeks to just work our way through this book. So uh, welcome to you. If, you. if you find yourself here today <clears throat> and you're not sure, <clears throat> excuse me, wow, Oklahoma is trying to kill me. Uh, the allergies are, are no joke out there. Uh, if you find yourself today just really trying to figure out where you stand with Christianity, where you stand with the church, where you stand with some of the claims that Jesus has made 
man, we just want to say we've been praying for you. We love you. We are so glad that you're here. Uh, you don't have to believe what we believe, but we want you to feel welcomed here. So uh, none of your questions are scary to us. We may not have the answers, but we'd love to try to try to sit down and process those with you. So thanks for being with us today. And uh, one of the things that we hope to do is each week be shaped by the Word of God together. So that's what we're doing. We're being shaped uh, by His Word. So if you have a Bible, go to Jude, and we're going to be in Jude uh, verses 5 through 16, a pretty big chunk of this letter. And uh, if you're not sure where that's at, you go to the very, very end, and it's right before the last book of the Bible, which is Revelation. So Jude is the second to the last book, and that's where we're going to be. Let me take a second and pray for us, and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for the grace that it is to gather with the people of God. And today, as we've already started to pray, I pray that you would allow eyes that are unable to see clearly, whether it's seeing you clearly or seeing themselves clearly, seeing ourselves clearly, I pray today that you would give us the grace to do that. Where there is a gap between what we say we believe and how we behave, I pray that you would confront us in your love. Where there's disagreements between me and you or us and you, we pray that you would close that gap today. We pray that your heart would more and more and more become our heart, that your truth and that your love and your life and your vision for ethics and how to live would more and more shape the way that we live. And we pray today, God, that you would meet us in our questions, meet us with your mercy in our sin, meet us with your grace in ways that we don't deserve. So come and move. <clears throat> Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a weird passage of scripture deserves a really weird intro, so here we go. Uh, I, I grew up in the country in uh, a little bit east of Oklahoma City, out on an acreage, and uh, my, my grandma and grandpa, who I loved dearly, lived right next door to us. So our house was here, their house was here, and we both had uh, an acreage, and so there's a lot of land between us. And there was a little dirt path between our house and their house because every day I would run down and hang out with my grandpa and my grandma and spend a lot of time at their house. <clears throat> and my grandpa, for some strange reason that I still to this day don't understand, would always buy these really weird animals. You know, we had the normal animals like goats and chickens and stuff, but we had weird animals too, like donkeys and uh, big horned mountain sheep. We had a pot-bellied pig or two. We had all these guineas. Do you know the bird, the guinea bird? We had all these guineas, and there's a whole other story about the guineas that we don't have time to get into. But one day I came home, and my grandpa had brought home with him two emu birds. Do you know what an emu is? <clears throat> an emu is uh, basically like an ostrich, uh, a little bit smaller, but still a giant bird, and more useless and more mean than an ostrich. They're really mean creatures, and he bought two of them. I'm not very sure why God even made emus. I don't know what purpose they serve in our world. Maybe they have a purpose, but he brought two of them home. And long story short, one day, uh, my family was out having a burn day. If you grew up in the country, you know what a burn day is. We're just burning random stuff. You know, it's like, hey, who, who needs a trash day when you can just burn everything? So we're having a burn day and, uh, and we're out in the field. And all of a sudden we hear this blood curdling scream. And one of the emu birds had attacked my little brother, Joseph. And my, my little brother at the time was six years old, was attacking my brother and pecked a hole in the back of his leg. There's literally fat from his calf muscle hanging out of his leg. And all of a sudden, 
My dad, who is out there, goes full-on dad mode. Now, my dad is a wee little man in terms of his height. He's not very tall. He's, he's, he doesn't look anything like me. Like, he's a strong-looking guy, but he's just not the tallest guy you've ever seen. And my dad, hearing and seeing what's happening to my brother, he takes off running towards the bird. He leaps over a huge fence. Like, I mean, it was incredible to watch. And then he positions himself between the bird and my little brother. And that, that's to be expected. Like, what parent wouldn't do that? But what happened next was not to be expected. He attacked the dang bird. Literally attacked the bird. And I'm watching this happen. And my dad is so fueled by anger over what's just happened to his son that I kid you not, he's trying to kill this emu with his bare hands. And this must have gone on for at least two minutes. A wrestling brawl between my dad and this giant bird. And he has his arm wrapped around the bird's neck and he's banging the bird's head on the ground. The bird is clawing my dad's back to shreds. There's blood everywhere. And I'm just watching this happen. And then eventually my dad, I guess, has enough, taps out and runs out. And my grandpa comes out of his house and shoots the bird and kills it. That's the end of the story. If I don't make more sense to you after that story, then I don't know what to tell you. This is just another day in the life of the Burkhart house growing up. Uh, here's, here's the point. Love will make you do crazy things. Love will make you do crazy things. Sometimes when you love a person, you'll do something romantic and creative for them. Sometimes love will make you attack a giant bird to protect your child. Sometimes love makes you speak a kind and gentle and life-giving word. But there are other times where love is going to make you raise your voice at your child when he rides his bike into a busy street. That just happened this week. Sometimes love makes you overlook a flaw or a past failure or be super patient with a person. But other times, real love looks like holding an intervention with someone. And here's why I tell you this. Because the book of Jude today, specifically the passage that we just read together, Jude has some really hard things to tell us. But what you need to understand is that every single word, every sentence is dripping with love. It's not sentimental love. It's not love that makes you feel good. It's not love that gives you warm fuzzies. But it's a type of fierce love that's willing to fight for you. It's a type of fierce love that's willing to go to the shadows to rescue you. It's a type of fierce love that will do anything and everything to fight for us, even if it means risking offending us so that, you and I, so that you and I might be rescued. And so here's what's happening in the context. If you weren't with us last week as we started this book, in Jude's context, we saw that this is not the letter that Jude wanted to write. Remember, he wanted to write a very different letter. He wanted to hold up the glories of our common salvation and look at it from different angles. And, and, and he wanted to sing this doxology over us for 25 verses. And yet something was happening in his context that demanded a very different type of letter. There were two ancient cancers that had crept into the church that Jude is writing to or the group of Christians that Jude is writing to. Two ancient cancers that we see throughout church history cropping up again and again and again, even in our context today. The first one was that there was a distortion of the grace of God into sensuality. 
that people are taking the grace of God or how we might define today the love of God and using that as a license to throw out any sort of moral imperatives on our lives. That because God is so kind and gracious towards us, because he's rescued us by his death and resurrection, we can do whatever we want to do. It was a distortion of grace into sensuality. In addition to that, there was a denial of Jesus as Lord and Master. That was the second ancient cancer that was eating away at the body of Christ from the inside out. Now, we don't have any evidence in the book of Jude that this was a theological denial of Jesus. Like, we don't think that there was necessarily a a heresy that they were believing or perpetrating. Maybe there was. We just don't know from the context of Jude. But what we do think Jude is saying here is that by their very lifestyle— as they twist the grace of God and distort it into sensuality, what's actually happening is they are, in effect, denying Jesus as Master and Lord. Ironically, they're professing faith in Jesus, but they're denying him by their lifestyle. Now, now one of the things that you have to understand if you're going to understand the intensity of this letter and why Jude is writing with this type of writing style is that this was happening underneath their noses and no one even knew. That people had crept in who are doing this. In other words, what's happening here is not that there's some well-known heresy from the outside infiltrating the church as much as there's people on the inside who would gather with the church, who would profess to be followers of Jesus, who would receive communion, sing the songs, pray the prayers, do what you and I just did together today, and yet what was happening at the core of their heart was a denial of Jesus as master and lord and this distortion of grace. And so this was happening as they were being, this was happening, they're creeping in unnoticed, and Jude is, is saying, hey, you guys are not obviously aware of what's happening. I need to write with this intensity to you. Now, Jude, who is obsessed with triads, you're going to see that again today, he's obsessed with groups of three, uh, in honor of Jude, really has three things that he wants to tell us today. The first thing is he wants to show us how this has always been the case. Among the people of God, throughout all of the biblical narrative that we have, all of the biblical history that we have, there's always been people who profess to be with God, the people of God, and yet are actually not, and then people who are truly the people of God. But there's always been those two working dynamics in biblical history. The second thing that Jude wants to do is he wants to sketch out for us what those people who aren't really the, the people of God look like, what the faux believers, these faux Christians look like. So he wants to sketch out for us what these false believers look and act like so that you and I can be aware. And then finally, what Jude wants to do is he wants to show us what God's heart is towards those people and what fate is in store for those people who profess one way, but actually live a very, very different way. Does that make sense? All right. So in light of that, let's jump in Jude verse five. Now I want to remind you although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. It's an incredible Christology that Jesus is the one who saved the people out of of Egypt. It wasn't just God in general. Jesus in particular did that. He keeps going. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, 
serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So what Jude does here is he gives us three different groups of people, and with each group he's highlighting a specific set of sins, or there's a specific sin bend that corresponds with each group. So three groups, three sins. Let's unpack it together. Here's the first group, the people of Israel. You can read about this specific story in Numbers 13 and 14. Now, the the greatest story of redemption in the Old Testament is the story of the Exodus. It's where God comes to his people who are enslaved in Egypt under the harsh uh, taskmaster of Pharaoh. They're being oppressed. And God, in his love and his power, he delivers the people out of their bondage in Egypt. He brings them safely across the Red Sea, which, by the way, is a future picture of baptism, where we're coming out of death into life, at th- crossing through the waters, right? And then he takes them to Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, he gives them the law to help them shape as their people. Here's what the ethics of the people of God look like. Here's how to live out of grace now that I've redeemed you. And then he promises to take them to the promised land. And if you read about the promised land, it's hard not to get the imagery of the Garden of Eden all over again. That what God is trying to say with the promised land is, hey, even though you've sinned, I want to deliver you and I want to bring you back to a place like Eden, a place of shalom, a place of wholeness, a place of peace, a place of of justice, a place where my presence is dwelling with you in perfection. That was God's heart for his people that he delivered out of Egypt. But the only problem, if you read the story, is that again and again and again and again, they continued to rebel, they continued to sin, they continued to have a hard heart. And one of this, really the story culminates in Numbers 13 and 14, where God is trying to get them to just walk into the promised land, but because of their sin and their unbelief, they refuse to do it. We read about this in Numbers 14, 11. Here's what it says. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? And so as a result of their unbelief, their despising of the Lord with their unbelief, what God does is he essentially uh, kills off that entire generation of people that got rescued out of Egypt and they did not get to enter into the promised land. And Jude is actually making a connection here and saying, just like that, hey, friends, you and I, we don't live between the Egypt deliverance and the promised land. We actually live between the cross and resurrection deliverance and our future promised land where Jesus brings heaven to this earth. We actually live in a similar place. And, and often what's happening is there are people in the church who are pointing back saying, I was delivered at the cross and at the resurrection of Jesus. And yet in this wilderness wandering of life, if you will, there's a level of outright unbelief towards God and despising of God. And, and Judah saying, don't presume on his grace here. Just because you say that you were delivered, hey, I can point to another story in the Old Testament where they said that they were delivered and they did not make it to the promised land. Yeah. Do you see what he's saying? Second group, angels in heaven. You can read this bizarre story in Genesis chapter 6, 1, and four, one through 4. And this is a really interesting story where angels who were essentially established by God, according to Hebrews, uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verse 14, angels are established by God to be ministering spirits that are sent out to serve the people of God, to even guard the people of God. That's what we know of angels. And yet these angels in Genesis chapter 6, they transgress their God-given limitations 
And what they do in response is that they find women on earth who they think are attractive, and these angels leave their proper dwelling place, and they enter into a sexual relationship with these women, and as a result, they're directly sinning against God. Now, that's weird and that's strange, but that's the story. And the point here is that God had placed them in a proper place, and they transgressed their proper place and wanted something more than their God-given limitations allowed. And he's pointing to that same sin today. The third group is Sodom and Gomorrah. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 19. Now, there was a lot of wickedness at play in Sodom and Gomorrah, and it was actually beyond sexual sin. I think often if you grew up in church and you hear the the names of those cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, it's easy just to assume that sexual sin was the only sin that was at play there. But Ezekiel wants to kind of broaden out what was happening with Sodom and Gomorrah. In Ezekiel 16, here's what we read that gives us just a little bit of a deeper insight into what was going on. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride excess of food, and prosperous ease. But, notice, they did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. So friends, Sodom and Gomorrah looked a lot more like the United States of America, if you will, where there's a level of prosperity, a level, a level of abundance, and that abundance has numbed us out to the needs of the poor and the needy among us. That was one of the biggest issues with Sodom. But Jude isn't talking about that. Jude is referencing a very specific story that actually was aiding in what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 19, we read another story where two angels who apparently looked just like normal men walk into Sodom and Gomorrah. They're visiting Sodom and Gomorrah, and they are nearly gang-raped by a group of young men and old men in the city. Now, I don't have time to read any of that story, but if you just go and read it, it's breathtakingly evil, and it will give you a description of what was really going on within this city. It was broken, and it was evil, and opposed to God at every level. And as a result, they were destroyed. And Jude is not mincing his words here. What he's saying here is, hey, it doesn't matter what our culture says about sex or sexuality. It doesn't matter who in the church legitimizes behavior that God condemns. It doesn't matter how many times you twist a certain text to say that it doesn't mean what it clearly says. God opposes sexual immorality in every form at every level, and this story should be taken with great seriousness. Now, notice what he goes on to do in verse 11. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. He, he transitions here from three groups with three specific sins to three individuals with three specific sins. The first one that he mentions is Cain. And you can read about Cain in Genesis chapter 4, but what does it mean when he says, They walk in the way of Cain. What is that? What is the way of Cain? Well, over time in the biblical narrative, Cain became an example of unbelief and cynicism. He became an example of someone who did not believe in God in a very cynical fashion. Uh, In fact, the writer of Hebrews mentions Cain's brother Abel and mentions him three times and juxtaposes Abel with Cain and talks about Abel's belief as opposed to Cain's unbelief. 
And what's really fascinating is over time, this was developed even more. There's something called the Jewish Targum, which is an Aramaic paraphrase of the Pentateuch. And in the Jewish Targum, it has Cain saying this in Genesis chapter 4. This is kind of an Aramaic paraphrase of what Cain said. There is no judgment, no judge, no reward to come, no reward will be given to the righteous, and no destruction for the wicked. Do you see the cynical unbelief at play in Cain's heart? We're saying, there's no judge. Live and do whatever you want. No one's going to be held accountable. It doesn't matter if you do the right thing or the wrong thing. There are no rewards and there are no future judgments. So having that posture towards God is walking in the way of Cain. When you, in your heart of hearts, say, yeah, everything in this world has just been going as it's been going and it's going on and on and on and It's never going to change, and God's not really ever going to hold anybody accountable, and he's never going to do anything. He's not going to hold me accountable for what I've done. He's not going to hold anybody else accountable. There's no rewards for being righteous, and there's no judgment for being wicked. When you have anything like that in your heart, you're walking in the way of Cain. And that has sadly become, in many ways, the spirit of our age today. He, He goes on, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir. So the second individual he mentions is a guy by the name of Balaam. And you can read about Balaam in Numbers 22 through 31, your favorite book of the Bible. And what he says here about Balaam is fascinating because Balaam is this interesting character who is sort of like a seer or like a not a part of the people of God, but a, but a prophet of sorts. And, and what happens with Balaam is that he gets recruited by the king of Moab to bring a curse on the people of Israel, and he refuses to do it. He says, I'm not going to do anything that God doesn't allow me to do. And so he's holding firm. He's not compromising. But over time, what we, what we realize in the story is that Balaam began to compromise as the king of Moab promised him more money and more money and more money. And so out of greed, Balaam compromises, and he tells the king of Moab a way of seducing the Israelites with Moabite women. And he says, hey, if you just have these women seduce the men, then not only is that going to lead them away, but they're going to start worshiping other gods as a result. And that's exactly what happens. He compromises out of greed and brings something devastating on the people of God. Verse 11, he goes on, and perished in Korah's rebellion. The third individual he mentions here is Korah. You can read about Korah in Numbers 16, 1 through 35. Now, Korah hated God's authority structure. He hated how he had set up Moses as the authority structure over Israel. And so he leads this rebellion. He gets 250 people, and they oppose Moses. And as a result, God ends up opening up the ground and causing the earth to swallow up Korah and his entire family. And the 250 people who opposed God end up getting destroyed by fire. This is what happened. So now he's pointing to this sin of rejecting authority, the authority that God has put in place. Now let's just pause here. Why? Why all the Old Testament tours? Why is he going through a Rolodex of Old Testament stories that in large measure for you and I today are somewhat unfamiliar to us? Why is he doing this? Well, Jude's point is that throughout the whole history of redemption, from the start of the story of Scripture till now, there have always been people among the people of God who are not actually the people of God. There have always been people who sit in the church services, who sing the songs, who read their Bibles, who attend a Bible study, maybe even lead it, who receive communion week in and week out, who had professed to be followers of Jesus 
but they've actually taken the grace of God and they've distorted and twisted it in a way that allows them to live however they live. And he's trying to say that, hey, this is not new. This is ancient and it has always been the case. Notice what he says in verse eight. Yet in like manner, these people relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. He's taking those Old Testament stories and he's pulling them into the present and he's saying, it's not just stuff that happened a long time ago, it's happening now, it's happening today, it's happening among us. And he's pointing to people who, relying on their dreams, that could be literal as in they're like literally having these, uh, these words from, from God that they're saying are prophetic that actually are not prophetic at all and it's against and opposed to what scripture teaches or they're relying on this internal, whatever they feel internally is right for them. It doesn't matter what it is, but the result is that they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme glorious ones. Then he goes on in verse 9. He says, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, <clears throat> he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. One more story that he quotes here, and this time it's not from the Old Testament. It's from something called the Assumption of Moses, which is an extra biblical uh, ancient Jewish literature. We don't have the full copy of that today. We don't have the specific thing that he's referencing today, but this is like extra biblical Jewish literature that he's quoting from. And although it's really tough to understand what he's saying, and commentaries disagree for days on what exactly is being said here, the way that I understand it is that Jude is describing a story from this religious liter literature where essentially the devil shows up shortly after Moses had died, and they're debating about uh, what happens to Moses. And the devil's showing up and basically accusing Moses of too much sin to be allowed entrance into the presence of God. That the devil's showing up and saying, Moses killed that guy in Egypt and he's done other crimes and he, you know, he hit the rock out of anger and he's done these things. So because of Moses' sin, he's not allowed entrance into your presence. And what's happening here is that uh, there's this angel, the archangel Michael, standing to the side here. And this is like almost an exact replica of a story we have in our scriptures in Zechariah chapter 3, where the devil is accusing Joshua the high priest. And long story short, what Michael does here is in humility, he doesn't even cast a judgment for or against on Moses, but just totally trust this to God to be the judge. God, you're the judge. This is your law. You decide if Moses is righteous or unrighteous. You decide what happens to Moses' body. And, and then we have this response where he says, Michael says to the devil, the Lord rebuke you. So even in humility, not outright saying, I'm, I'm rebuking you. He's saying, hey, Moses is in your hands, God, and the Lord rebuke you. And the whole point here is that Michael is acting contrary to all these faux Christians in the church where they are presuming on the grace of God. They're looking at the law and looking at his grace and saying, I can presume to live however I want. And, and his whole point of bringing this story into play here is to show how even Michael the archangel, who knows the heart of God and knows how the law was structured, even he wouldn't bring a claim against Moses and even he wouldn't presume upon the grace of God. And yet these people in these churches they're creeping in unnoticed, taking the law, twisting it, distorting it, doing whatever they want in the name of love. Now, at this point in the sermon, I've lost 95% of you, 
And so to help you re-engage, I want to show you this super cute photo of kittens. <laughs> right? Here's another one. Oh my goodness, right? All right, are you back with me? Okay, here we go. We're going to keep moving. Jude, what is your point? What is your point, Jude? You have gone through the entire Old Testament narrative and you're using this harsh language. What is happening here? Well, two things. Here's the first one. Jude is giving you and I a portrait of apostasy. He's giving us a portrait of apostasy. Let me define that word, apostasy. Apostasy is describing a person who once claimed to follow Jesus but has since departed from the faith once delivered. They started out with us, but they didn't stay with us. They were a part of the people of God. They professed to be. They did the things, but they didn't stay with us. They've abandoned the belief and the obedience and the love that Christians are called to embrace and live out. And Jude's point is that this has been happening from day one with the people of God. It's not new, and you and I need to be paying attention because this might be us today. That's the point. He's putting this portrait of apostasy together so that you and I can wrestle with the portrait and say, does that look like me or not? Does that look like my life or not? Do you see what he's doing here, right? So let me just kind of put it all together for you and notice how these people have been marked throughout this biblical narrative, the sins that they're bending towards. The first one, unbelief, like the people of Israel. A transgression of God's limitations, like the fallen angels in heaven. Sexual immorality, like the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Unbelieving cynicism, like Cain. Greed that leads to compromise, like Balaam. A rejection of authority, like Korah. These are the people that have crept in unnoticed and are distorting grace and denying Jesus as master. You have to look at that list and ask yourself, and I've got to look at that list and ask myself, does that look like me or not? Because contending for the faith once delivered doesn't start by by becoming a heresy hunter where you try to find all the heretics out there. Contending for the faith once delivered starts with me looking at me. And starts with you looking at you. And specifically, he's writing to those of us here among us who claim to be followers of Jesus. And he's saying, does this portrait look like you? Because this is the portrait of apostasy. It does not matter what you say your theology is. It does not matter what you profess to believe. It does not matter what you articulate down on paper that you think is ultimately true of you. What matters is how you are living. What matters is your behavior. If grace hasn't changed you, then you've not met grace. And that's heavy and that's hard, but that's what he's saying to us. We contend for the faith by starting here, contending for my own heart. And notice what Jude goes on to say about these people. This is scary stuff. Verse 12, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Love feasts is an ancient early church way of talking about the Lord's Supper. They called the early gatherings love feasts, you know? And that's, they got a really weird reputation for that in the first century where they would have these love feasts feasting on the body and blood of Christ. So they were known as like, 
you know, the people that were having orgies and, you know, cannibalism was at play in the early church. And yet what was actually happening is that they were gathering together under the lordship of Jesus, driven by his love, changed by his love, eating the bread and eating the, drinking the wine. And he's saying, yeah, but there are people, they're like hidden reefs. Imagine being in an ocean and you're, you're in a boat and then you slam into a hidden reef that you didn't see. They're like hidden reefs at your love feast. Sitting there, taking the bread, taking the wine, zero fear in their heart. They're shepherds feeding themselves. God has a lot to say about shepherds feeding themselves in the Old Testament. None of it's good. Waterless clouds swept along by winds. Imagine if you're a farmer and you're like in a drought and you need it to rain and you have this huge storm blow in, huge clouds, lots of wind, but no rain. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. A tree that's a fruit tree that doesn't bear any fruit, but it's not only not bearing fruit, it's uprooted. It's dead and dead again. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. This turmoil of these waves is just producing a bunch of garbage that washes up on the sea, saying that's what these people are doing. Wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Wandering stars is a reference to how sailors in the ancient world would use stars to navigate. But there are certain stars that were known as wandering stars <clears throat> that didn't quite fit the system at play. And so if you're navigating by those wandering stars, it would actually lead you way off course. And he's saying, that's what these people are doing. Again, verse 16, notice, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Jude, tell us how you really feel about these people. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying grace has not changed them. Grace has not driven them to holiness. They've professed the right stuff, but this is who they really are. This is what you and I have to wrestle with. Now, what is God's response to these people? Well, notice the strong language that Jude uses in verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh of Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He's quoting from the book of Enoch, and what he says here is essentially the second thing I want you to see, which is the reality of judgment. He's giving us a portrait of, of apostasy, and then in response, he's saying, and notice what God does every time. There's this reality of judgment. Notice the fate of every group and every person that Jude has mentioned in this section of Jude. Jude. What happened to the people of Israel who presumed on grace and failed to believe? Well, Jesus destroyed them in the wilderness. What happened to the angels who rebelled against God and left their proper place? Well, Jesus has kept them in eternal chains of darkness until the great day. What happened to the sexually immoral cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? They experienced a punishment of fire. Cain was exiled. Balaam was killed with a sword. Korah and his family were swallowed up in the earth. And friends, this is not popular, it's not easy, it's hard to hear, but it is true. The entire Bible, from start to finish, is one long, unbroken testimony of God's absolute opposition to all that is sinful and wrong. It's absolute opposition to all that is wrong. All throughout Scripture, we see God actively judging and punishing 
sin. And this is not something that Christians have been shy about or embarrassed about. Friends, this is in the most ancient creed of the church, the Apostles' Creed, that says this. The third day Jesus rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. This is true. There is an actual day of judgment coming. Because God is love, God also hates. And you have to get this. God is love. Love is his very essence. Love is his core. And for someone to truly be loving, they also must hate. And you know this to be true. If you love peace, then you hate violence. If you love children, then you hate sexual abuse that's done to kids. If you love God's vision for diversity, then you'll hate racism. You'll hate what happened yesterday in the shooting in New York. If you love the dignity of women, then you'll hate pornography. If you love good food, then you will hate McAllister's. (laughs) You'll hate it because it's disgusting. They should pay you to eat there. God is love. That may have, was that the most offensive thing I've said today? Wow. Great. I'm doing great then. God is love, therefore he hates evil. Let me quote from Scott Sauls. For love to be truly loving, there must be judgment. If there is no judgment, then there is no hope for a slave, a rape victim, a child who's been abused or bullied, or people who have been slandered or robbed or had their dignity stolen. If nobody is called to account before a cosmic judgment seat for violence and oppression, then the victims will never see justice. We need a God who gets angry. We need a God who will protect his kids, who will once and for all remove bullies and perpetrators of evil from his playground. So where do we go from here? Well, quickly, number one, if you profess faith in Jesus, I need you to take an honest assessment of your life. We need to do this. We need to look at this book. We need to look at our lives. We need to set our profession to the side for a minute and say, am I really living this way? Because remember, his goal is for us to contend for the faith. His goal is that he's writing to people who are kept for Jesus, but he's telling us to keep ourselves in his love. Are you keeping yourself in his love? Is this you? Have you been changed by grace? Take an honest assessment of your life. Number two, there is an actual day of judgment coming. And you and I have to grapple with that, that how we live today will be held in account on the great day. And it doesn't matter my intentions. It doesn't matter my gifting. It doesn't matter my earthly success. It doesn't matter my Twitter following. It doesn't matter what I meant. It doesn't matter. I'll stand before a living God and he will see right through me and there won't be anywhere to hide. But friends, one of the good news pieces here is that yes, there is a day of judgment coming, but it has not yet come. It's not yet here. And have you noticed that Jude has been quoting things all the way back in Scripture to Genesis chapter 4, nearly the very beginning of the story? Have you noticed? And yet God has not come back to judge. Why? Well, 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, 
as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's writing this so that those who are among them who have crept in unnoticed might for the first time have their hearts awakened to reality and be drawn into repentance by God's patience. If you do the assessment of your life and you find yourself outside the faith, there's good news for you. You're welcomed into the faith. You're welcomed into the arms of a loving God who wants to receive you and forgive you and love you. He's inviting you into repentance. Those faux Christians were hearing this letter read out loud so that God might awaken something in them. If that's you today, there's hope. And that leads me to the last thing, and I'll close. Hide yourself in Jesus. Yeah, it's true that the entire Bible is one long unbroken testimony of God's opposition to sin, but that's only half the story. Maybe the bigger half of the story is that the Bible is one long, unbroken testimony of God's deep and unrelenting, unconditional love for every single person. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter if you feel like you're outside the bounds of his forgiving grace. I'm actually crazy enough to not just believe in a judgment day, but I'm crazy enough to believe these words from John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. On the cross, Jesus willingly took the judgment that I deserved in my place for my sins. And on the cross, Jesus was plunged into gloomy darkness for me, And on the cross, the full weight of the justice and the wrath that I deserved was infinitely poured out and absorbed by him freely so that though I was dead, I could be given life as a gift. And it's because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus that on judgment day, I don't have to stand there naked by myself, but I can actually stand there clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus on my behalf. And when the Father looks at me, he actually sees the perfect Son of God in my place. That's your hope, and that's our hope. So friends, may we be people who refuse to distort the grace of God into sensuality. And may we be people who refuse to, not, to deny Jesus as our Lord and Master. And may we take seriously the judgment of God against sin. And friends, may we be people who hide ourselves in the finished work of Jesus.